Hi, this is Edwin Crozier, and I want to thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word brought to you by the Franklin Church of Christ. The lesson you're about to hear, following the White Rider, is an exciting study of the sixth chapter of Revelation. You're going to learn a little bit about how I read the book and a lot about this great message of victory for us as we start to follow the White Rider. I need to make one technical note. Due to some technical difficulties beyond our control, a brief section in the middle of this lesson was lost. Also, there is one section where the quality becomes very scratchy. If you hang on for about 30 seconds, that will clear up. Now that we have those technical bits out of the way, pull out your Bible, sit back, and get ready to find out what we can learn when we follow the White Rider. Revelation is a tough book to preach about. Mostly because, well, we've all studied a little bit, and we've all figured out exactly what it means. Now, that is that it's just very easy for, for some of us to get into it and read the commentaries and come up with our own opinions and, and be able to say, well, I, I know what everybody else said, but I've really figured out what it meant. And I'm not really an exception to that rule. But it's tough to preach on because I know that just about anything that I might say to you about the book of Revelation on the way out, at least 15 are going to say, well, you know, overall I think I agree with you, but you really missed it on this passage because I've studied it and I've figured out here's what it means. And so with that thought in mind, I, I want to share with you some things about the book of Revelation because as we're doing our Give Attention to Reading, Trek Through the Bible, we're down to the final couple of weeks. In fact, this next week I believe is our, our last week and we're reading the book of Revelation. I want to just talk about some of the things that we've read from there. But instead of coming at it from the standpoint of here I am, I figured it out, and you all just need to agree with me, I just want to share with you some things from Revelation chapter 6 that, that I've gathered from it, and hopefully we can just kind of toss that out into our group consciousness as we're all trying to grapple with that book and figure out what Jesus was wanting us to know about God's will so that, so that in the end our name can be in the book of life. And as Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 and 19 points out, that we can have our share in the tree of life and in the holy city of God. Before I talk to you a little bit about Revelation chapter 6, I do need to express to you kind of my overall view of the book. I think we make a mistake if we view the book of Revelation as one really long prophecy that begins at one point in time in Revelation 1.1 and ends at some future date at the end of Revelation chapter 22. Instead, I think it's a lot better to view Revelation like those Russian nesting dolls. You know those little dolls where you, you pull the top off and there's another one, and you pull another top off and there's another one, and you pull the top off and there's another one? When, when we look through the book of Revelation, I don't think we see just one long prophetic vision, but rather we see a series of cyclical and, and if you will, nested apocalyptic visions that, that really aren't giving us anything new. You know what I mean? With this Russian nesting doll, you pull it off and, and it's another one and it's pretty much the same. And I don't know if the picture is better understood by, by seeing it as starting with the small one and adding layer on top of layer and it becoming more expansive and, and, and bigger and, and more dynamic, or if it's, if it's better to look at the picture of having the big one and, and peeling one layer off and another layer off until we're drilling down into the real deep part of the matter. I, I don't know which way the picture would better be seen, but I, I just think when we look through Revelation, we see this kind of cyclical nested visions that are basically giving us the same message over and over and over again. And that message is, God wins. If you just think about the book of Revelation and the cyclical nature, notice how often that there's these patterns of seven. We've got seven churches and then seven seals and then seven trumpets and then seven bowls. And interestingly, as you look at those visions, 
They're almost nested inside of each other. For instance, in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1, in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1 and 2, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. It's that seventh seal that kind of peels away that next layer and gets us down to the seven trumpets. And then we get into chapter 11 and verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And, and it's that seventh trumpet that starts this series of visions which eventually culminate in chapter 15 and verse 8 with the sanctuary being filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one would enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice in chapter 16 and verse 1 from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Here's this idea of kind of like the, that nested vision. It's the, the seventh seal leads to the seven trumpets and the seven trumpet leads to the seven bowls. And it's just almost that idea of this cyclical picture. And, and every time we're not trying to see again some, you know, some event that happened, say, on the day of Pentecost or when Jesus died all the way up till when Jerusalem was destroyed or Rome was destroyed or the world ends, whatever your view on that is, but rather these cyclical visions that over and over again are giving us the exact same message. God wins. Some of the details may be different. Some of the, some of the pictures that are used to make the point may be a little bit different, but over and over again we're seeing the same vision. It's as though God there at the end is just, just really hammering down on us no matter what happens. I'm going to win. And what I'd like for us to do this morning is just take a look at one of those nested visions. We're going we're gonna to drop into Revelation chapter 6. Obviously, we could talk about so much more throughout the entire book of Revelation. But I just want us to take a look at one of these visions that takes place throughout this series of cyclical visions and, and see what it says and what we can learn about how to serve God in our world where it seems like the world, well, that doesn't seem, the world is opposed to our God. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we praise your name because you are awesome and we are amazed at your great strength and your might, your creation. We're amazed at your, your mercy, at your love. We're amazed at your judgment. We're amazed at your holiness. We're just in awe of you, Father, because you are so worthy of glory and honor and we are so unworthy. And because of that, we're thankful that you let us come into your presence to pray to you, to sing praises to you, to lay our petitions out before you. We're thankful that you let us be a part of your plan. We're thankful that you've given us your word so that we can understand it and serve you. And we're even thankful for this book of Revelation. As much trouble as it causes us and as difficult as it is, we're thankful that you've given it to us so that we can have this reminder that you are indeed the victor, that you are the sovereign ruler of the universe, that you win, and that no matter what it looks like here in the world, we need to be on your side. Help us, Father, to remember that when the enemies are pressing in around us, when, when our lives seem miserable and and terrible, and Satan seems to be overcoming, help us to remember that you are the victor and to stay on your side and to serve you. Forgive us for the times that we've gone over to the other side. Forgive us for the times that we've sinned and, and followed our own path. Forgive us for the times that through doubt and weakness we've, we've, we thought that you weren't with us and we thought you abandoned us, so we abandoned you. Help us to pick up our cross again, to turn to you and to follow you and to follow your son. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we need to look at here in Revelation chapter 6, we come to verse 2, uh, verse 1. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! 
And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, this is, this is pretty tough, and the reason why it's hard for us to, to understand what this is about is because, sadly, our premillennial friends have stolen this vision, and they've twisted it, and they've perverted it, even to the point that some Christians, when they look at it, can't see what this vision is really all about. Our premillennial friends tell us that this is clearly the Antichrist and his new world order that's coming into the world. And yet, apart from any premillennial prejudices, there's not a character of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. It's just not there. You know, we would think, because we hear from Tim LaHaye so often and, and, and all of these guys that the Antichrist is there in Revelation, we think that we just see him on every page, but the word Antichrist is not even used once in the book of Revelation. Rather, Antichrist was a concept in one of John's letters back in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 2 and 3 where it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. So Antichrist was not some picture of some world ruler who was going to come in and take over the world and establish some new order that was just going to be awful and heinous and cause a, a major tribulation. Antichrist is just that spirit of folks who deny Jesus. And it's always been here and will always be here. It's not some figure that we're looking for. And there's no character in the book of Revelation that is the Antichrist, that is the Antichrist. It's just not there. Apart from premillennial prejudice, you're just not going to get it. Instead, it's better to take a look at the context of the book of Revelation to figure out what this is. Because we see this character again in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, John says, this is Revelation 19:11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. You see, we see the exact same character again. Now, we know who this one is in Revelation 19.11. There's no doubt. Nobody can argue about it. Nobody does argue about it. It's Jesus. It's the Word of God. And here in Revelation 19.11, what's he doing? He's going forth conquering and to conquer. He's judging. He's making war. He's doing the exact same thing he was doing back in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. Now, why on earth would we take the exact same picture in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2 and give it the exact opposite meaning as we do in Revelation 19.11. This is not two different characters. This is not someone posing as the Christ. This is Jesus. This is how it started. Jesus went forth establishing his kingdom, conquering and to conquer. But this provides us with the very first lesson that we need to recognize from this. And that is that Jesus going forth conquering and to conquer did not do so to establish a physical kingdom, but to establish a spiritual kingdom. And this is important because the Jews for centuries had been imagining that the Messiah would come in, would ride in on a steed, diadem on his head, establishing his throne in Jerusalem, and would conquer all the enemies. He would go forth conquering and to conquer. If Rome was the one in power at the time, he would destroy Rome. And whatever kingdoms were out there, he would come in and destroy all of them. And the Jews would sit on their thrones in Jerusalem, and they would rule the world, and they would have peace and plenty and prosperity, and the Messiah would come in, and he would be their king because of his conquering. And if we just stopped at verse 2, we might think that's the picture that Jesus is giving John, but when we keep reading, we realize that there's something else going on here. 
We need to understand, Jesus is conquering. Jesus is conquering. It doesn't just say He wanted to conquer. It says He was going forth to conquer and conquering. He's winning. But let's keep reading. Verse 3, when He opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And He was given a great sword. We see war. We see fighting, infighting among the people. War still continues on. Not peace. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. We actually see here a picture of political inequity. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But the idea of political inequity, people being oppressed by governing bodies. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and, and by wild beasts of the earth. Despite the fact that Jesus is going forth conquering and to conquer, there's still natural disasters, famine, pestilence, and death. This is not a picture of physical peace and prosperity and plenty. And then we notice in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw unto the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. War was even being made on the very people of God. Those who had submitted to the conquering king were being killed. What does all this demonstrate to us? Does it demonstrate that Jesus is not conquering? No. Not when we understand it properly. It just demonstrates that the idea of Jesus' victory is not bound up in the physical realm. He came to bring salvation. But then we also even read verses 9 through 11, and the war that was waged against even the saints of God, and the fact that they were being put to death. Jesus did not even come into the world to protect us, His people, from physical death. He didn't come in to protect us in a physical way when folks would attack us. He came to bring spiritual protection so that when it's done, we could go to heaven. Notice what he says to them when they cry out. Actually, that's getting ahead of myself. Let's just stay back here for a moment. The thing we need to understand is that when we hear about the tsunamis that impact our brethren in the Philippines and China, that shouldn't cause us to doubt God. When we hear about tornadoes that rip through a Boy Scout camp, killing four boys, one of whom is a grandson of an elder down in a church in Alabama. That shouldn't cause us to turn away from God. When we hear about floods that are leaving some of our brethren homeless, that shouldn't cause us to turn away from God because Jesus didn't come into the world to stop those things. When we hear about legislation that we're afraid is going to undermine our work as Christians and might even possibly lead to persecution, that shouldn't cause us to turn away from God. Because Jesus didn't come into the world to stop those things. Jesus came into the world to bring salvation. And as Paul said in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, we enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. This walk as a Christian is not a rose garden path. It's a walk in a wicked world where we stand out and are different and people don't like us for it. 
So we just need to be prepared for that. But the third thing, and this one perhaps is a shocking thing, is that at times it will seem like Jesus isn't doing anything about it. At times it will seem like Jesus is losing and he's not doing anything. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, when the, the folks beneath the altar cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Do you know what they're asking there? God, why aren't you doing anything? Wars are going on. Death is going on. Famine and pestilence and, and natural disaster is still going on. And they're even making war. They're killing us. What are you doing up there? Playing tiddlywinks? When are you going to do something about this? Notice what God says to them. He gives them a white robe. That's a reward. He rewards them. And then He says, do you notice the phrase, rest a little longer. What's that mean they've been doing? They've been resting. These folks who have been martyred, they they haven't been in this wicked world anymore. They, They haven't been oppressed anymore. They've been resting. He points out to them, look, you guys are okay. Just rest a little longer. And then he says that he's going to take care of it in his time. He's got a plan that when the, the, the faithless and the wicked have martyred everybody they're going to martyr, when their wickedness has been complete, that's when he's going to bring judgment upon them. He's got his plan. He's got his time. He'll take care of it in his time. So what does this mean for us? This means we need to remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. We have faith that God is doing His work, that God will come through, whether it looks like it or not. No matter what we're facing, and whether we're talking on a grand scale of the church or on an individual scale of our personal lives and our family, with with the enemies pressing in and, and lack of health and all the things that might happen, we might think that God isn't doing anything, but we can have faith. Walk by faith, not by sight. Remember what it said in Romans chapter 8. In verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We can have faith that that no matter what it looks like, no matter what's happening, that we know that God is powerful enough that He can weave all of it together for our ultimate good. That's how good our God is. That's how great He is. That's how powerful He is. That's how amazing He is. And so in those times when it looks like He's not doing anything about it, that's when we need to increase our faith. That's when we need to remember that there is something going on behind the scenes and that God is winning and we need to be on His side. Which brings us to the final point that we recognize from this. And that is that in the end, Jesus always wins. Notice what begins in chapter in verse 12 when He opened the sixth seal. Now this is hard for us to recognize because He just said wait a while and then it happens in the next verse. You see, these verses here aren't giving us a time frame. They're just talking about the things that are going to happen. Notice what happens in verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. What is this? This is a picture of judgment. The earth quakes, the sun is darkened, the moon becomes as blood, stars are falling from the sky, the sky is rolled back like a scroll, mountains and islands are thrown out of their place. This is God's judgment finally coming upon us. They ask, when are you going to do something about it? God says, I'm going to do it here. And now we're seeing the picture of God bringing the judgment. In fact, 
Keep reading, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Vision, the wrath of God is finally coming. It's kings, it's generals, it's the rich. It's the people who have been oppressing the Christians. You remember what it said in James chapter 2? In James chapter 2 and verse 6. James 2 and verse 6, You've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This is a picture of the very people who were oppressing, who were martyring, who were persecuting, and now the judgment is coming upon them and they're running and they're hiding and they'll hope that the mountains will cover them. They'd rather be covered up by a mountain than see the wrath of God. But notice that last question. Who can stand? And the vision in chapter 7 answers that question. Verse 1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. The people of God are sealed and protected from this harm. And we're not going to get in too much to the concept of the numbers being used. That number 12, significant. The tribes, number of the tribes of Israel, the number of the apostles. And then, of course, the thousand, ten times ten times ten. It's not a picture of a specific number of people, but the fact that there's the complete number of people are being sealed and protected. Those who are God's people are sealed and protected from the wrath of God that's going to come. But then notice the vision as it continues in verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Clothed in white robes. Who's that? Doesn't that refer back to the people who had just cried out in chapter 6? When are you going to do something about this? Now God has done it and they're no longer questioning Him. Now they're worshiping Him. In verse 10, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the victory of God. This is the fact that 
Sometimes it looks like Jesus is losing. He's not doing anything about it. But Jesus always wins. The enemy of God's people will be judged. And those who have been on His side will be sealed and will be protected. And whether we live through whatever it is that we're facing or we die in it, it doesn't matter. We come out on the other side victors with Jesus Christ. No matter what we're facing, Jesus is conquering. He wins. And we need to be on His side. And so the question is, whose side are you on today? I don't know what's going on in your world. I think the reason... Now let me back up. I, I know we, we can argue about whether this is originally about Rome or the destruction of Jerusalem. Frankly, for us, I'm not sure that it matters which one it is. Because I think the reason that Jesus placed this message in apocalyptic signs is because He didn't want us to think that these images were about one thing and, and one group of people and now it's over and done. He wanted us to see that whether this was an attack on God's people as a whole and whether it was from the Jews or from the Romans or, or, or from the Americans, from the Muslims, doesn't matter whether it's about God's people as a whole or whether it's about what you're facing in your life, the message still applies. The message still applies. Jesus is conquering because His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. He's not promised us ease in this life. And sometimes it'll look like even in your life that Jesus is not doing anything, but I want you to know that He is. And in the end, the enemies will be... No matter, no matter what, whether it's from your family or your friends or co-workers, even from false brethren, in the end, those who are on God's side will be sealed and protected and those who are not will be judged. Whose side are you on today? I hope today's lesson was beneficial for you. Let's remember what we learned from Revelation 6. Number one, Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom, not a physical one. Number two, Jesus did not come to give us a life of ease. Number three, sometimes it will look like Jesus is losing and not doing anything about it. Number four, in the end, Jesus always wins. Therefore, we have to ask, whose side are you on today? I hope this lesson edified and uplifted you. Feel free to use this audio recording or the printed outline in whatever way you believe will benefit Christ's kingdom. If you have any questions or perhaps a prayer request, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359. Or you can contact us through the website where you found this recording, franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.